Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic descriptions of attempted sexual violence, as well as dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In Des Plaines, Illinois, the winter season can last half of the year. By November, the trees have gone bald, the temperatures dip into the 20s, and the city has settled in for another long stretch of cold days and even colder nights. The town is only a half hour away from Chicago, and it shares the gusts of lakefront air that gave the Windy City its nickname. December 11, 1978, was a typical winter day for the town, 29 degrees with a strong wind. The people in Des Plaines had gotten used to the cold. It was just the way things were. But other horrors had gone unnoticed. Teenagers and young boys had been going missing for several years. Abandoned cars, the engine still running, a single glove left on the sidewalk. No note, no trace, just gone. The cases were spread out, almost random but always boys, many well into their teens. A dark specter was weaving its way through the city like a plume of smoke. Many people on Des Plaines were blissfully unaware, but all the while it searched for another victim, and soon it found a new boy, 15-year-old Robert Peast. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the murder of Robert Peast. This week, we'll cover the investigation into his disappearance. Next week, we'll cover how this one case became much larger, eventually turning into a story that shocked the entire country. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016... Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A little before 9 p.m. on December 11th, 1978, 
Elizabeth Peast left her Des Plaines home and drove into the night. This was her daily routine. Leave the house in time to arrive at Nissan Pharmacy, right before her 15-year-old son Robert was finishing his shift. Robert Peast was a sophomore at Maine West High School and an honor student. With long, dark hair that reached his shoulders, he looked the part of a typical 1970s teenager. Elizabeth pulled up to the pharmacy, but Robert wasn't ready yet. He explained to his mother that he would only be a few minutes. A man inside had told him about a construction job that could pay him $5 an hour, twice what he was currently making. He re-entered the store and his mother watched him go. Elizabeth Peast expected Robert to return quickly, but as the minutes ticked by, she only became more worried. 20 minutes had passed with no sign of his return. Elizabeth wandered around the parking lot, calling Robert's name, but he didn't respond. Clearly, something wasn't right. She sped back home and anxiously called Robert's friends, but no one had heard from him. Now, the rest of the Peast family started getting nervous. Robert wasn't a bad kid, and he wouldn't run off without telling his family. The family searched the area around the pharmacy one more time. They took their two German shepherds with them, hoping the dogs would be able to follow Robert's scent. But after an hour wandering in the dark, the Peast family had failed to find him. Shortly after 11 p.m., the family walked into a Des Plaines police station to file a missing persons report. Not to worry, Mr. Peast. We're going to help you find your son. First, I need you to tell me his daily routine. Sure. My wife picks Robert up at school every weekday around 5.30. She brings him dinner and he eats it in the car as she drives him to work at the pharmacy. She picks him up from work every evening at uh, 9 p.m. Anything special about this particular day? Well, Robert had mentioned that he wanted to speak to some man, a construction guy who could offer him a summer job. I think his name was John James... You might want to ask the guys at the pharmacy. I think he's been there before. Will do. You and your family take the night to regroup. We'll find him. All the Peast family could do was wait. Lucky for them, they didn't have to wait long for the police to act. When Chief Detective Joseph Kozenzak arrived at the station the next morning, he began his day the way he always did, by looking through the reports made in his absence. But when he came upon the name Robert Peast, he felt a jolt. Robert went to high school with the chief's son, Michael. In fact, they were the same age. This case immediately took on a personal tone. That sentiment was shared by the lead officer assigned to the case, Detective Ron Adams. Robert Peast had barely been missing for a day, but Adams wasted no time. Even before Kozenzak arrived at work that morning, Adams had already pored over the missing persons report and spoke to the Peast family himself. The next thing to do was retrace Robert's steps, starting at the last place he was seen. So while the chief waited back at the station, Adams drove to Nissan Pharmacy. He was hoping that the two brothers who owned the business might be able to identify the man who had offered Rob the summer job. I just don't understand how Rob could disappear like this. That's not like him. Yes, but you said that there was a man in here last night, and Rob spoke to him? Oh, yeah. Big guy, too. He's remodeling the place. 
Looks nice, right? He does good work. Yes, very nice. But this man, he was the one who offered the summer job to Robert. Yeah, I heard the two of them talking. Then I think they might have left together. And his name? Oh, well, uh, that'd be John Gacy. After speaking with the owner of the pharmacy, Detective Adams learned that John Gacy owned a business called PDM Contractors. The previous night, Gacy had been in the store twice. Detective Adams also spoke to one of Robert's co-workers, Kim Byers. She remembered seeing Gacy in the store and that Robert had mentioned that the contractor wanted to see him. This man was apparently the last person to see Robert Peast before he disappeared. So, after leaving the pharmacy, Detective Adams called Gacy at home to ask him about it. Mr. Gacy, this is Detective Adams with Des Plaines Police. I just wanted to ask you a few questions concerning your conversation last night with Robert Peast. Sorry, who? Rob Peast, the 15-year-old boy who works at Nissan Pharmacy. You offered him a summer job with your contracting business last night. I've never spoken to a Rob Peast. I don't know who you're talking about, Detective. You're currently remodeling Nissan Pharmacy, correct? Yes, that's correct. But I only ever speak to the owners of that establishment. The most I've ever said to the employees is a simple, hello, nothing more. Sir, several people claim that you spoke to this boy last night. Are you suggesting none of that took place? I was at Nissan Pharmacy last night, but I was in and out. That's it. John Gacy's story sounded fair enough, but it didn't match up to the statements given by the pharmacy staff. Maybe this was just a misunderstanding, or more likely, someone was lying. When Detective Adams returned to the police department, he found that Chief Kozenzak had also been busy. After the two men discussed the conflicting eyewitness statements, Kozenzak updated Adams on his own progress. While you were away, I put a team together for this case. We got two detectives from the Youth Bureau, Mike Olson and Jim Pickell. You'll be working alongside them. Happy to work with you. Likewise. Now, Adams, I'd like you to start giving me hourly reports on your findings. Interview Robert's friends, co-workers, anyone who might know his habits. Sure thing. Pickell, call up Chicago police and see if they have any information on Gacy. You got it, sir. I think this man knows more than he's letting on. Let's see what background we can find on him. The detectives got straight to work. Within a matter of hours, Detective Adams had located John Gacy's business, PDM Contractors Corporation, at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue. As luck would have it, Gacy ran his business out of his own house. But Detective Pakel was about to find a much more surprising piece of information about this man. After speaking with detectives from the Chicago police, he was able to access Gacy's criminal records. Sir, you need to see this. I just got off the phone with CPD and they read me Gacy's rap sheet. It's... well, take a look. May 1968, Waterloo, Iowa, sodomy. Whoa, who is this guy? There's more. Keep reading. 1972, arrested for... Good God! In 1972, John Gacy had lured a young man into his car by posing as a police officer. Gacy handcuffed the passenger and then asked him, 
What's it worth to you to get out of this? John Gacy attempted to force the young man into performing oral sex on him. When the passenger resisted, Gacy beat him. Somehow, the young man managed to escape, running down the street as Gacy pursued behind the wheel. Eventually, Gacy caught up to the young man and hit him with the car, leaving him there. The victim survived and eventually testified against his attacker. But bizarrely, Gacy was apparently left with what amounted to a warning. He was never convicted. Reading this report, Chief Kozenzak was more certain than ever before. John Gacy was involved in Robert Peast's disappearance. Coming up, the police discovered John Gacy's suspicious past, and the hunt for Robert Peast picks up. Stay with us. Listeners, have you heard the eerie new podcast, Superstitions? Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this fantastic series from Parcast. It's already one of my new favorites. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why should you hold your breath when passing a cemetery? What's the point of carrying a rabbit's foot around with you? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem mystical or illogical or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to our story. On December 12, 1978, Robert Peast had only been missing for a day, but already it looked like the police were zeroing in on someone who might know where the teenager was. Cousin Zach's suspicions about John Gacy only grew after he received the day's report from Detective Adams. Adams had been speaking to Robert Peace's friends and co-workers, but nothing turned up. Nobody seemed to have any idea where he could be. With Gacy as the only clear person of interest, Cousin Zach planned for an interview with the contractor that same night. But as he told his men, this would be tricky. So I just got off the phone with the Cook County State Attorney's Office. We don't have a search warrant yet, and we don't have cause to make an arrest, so we've been advised to treat Gacy as a witness, not a suspect. I see. So we have to butter him up, basically? Well, we just can't use any accusatory language. This guy doesn't have to do or say anything he doesn't want to, and it's our job to make him feel comfortable talking to us. But hopefully this should be a piece of cake. Let's go. Detective Adams was off for the night. So Kozenzak brought in another detective, Dave Summershield, along with detectives Pickell and Olson. The plan was simple. The team would take two unmarked police cars out to Gacy's house, with the intention to bring the man back to the police station for an interview. Shortly after 9 p.m., nearly 24 hours after Robert Peast disappeared, the men set out into the night. 8213 West Summerdale was an unassuming single-story house. 
It was built with red brick and had a strip of green lawn, interrupted by a plain cement walkway that led to the front door. Sloping piles of snow had been scraped up onto the grass in the side of the building. The two squad cars quietly pulled into the driveway. Kozenzak and Pekel walked up to the front door and knocked. But Gacy didn't answer. Kozenzak saw movement inside and could vaguely make out the outline of a man's head. What is he doing in there? Just then, a van pulled up next to the house. A young man got out and approached the two officers. He was young, pimple-faced, with long hair. For the sake of his privacy, we'll refer to him as James Hutton. Evening, son. Who are you? I'm James. I work with Mr. Gacy at PDM Contractors. If you're looking for him, try the back door. Sometimes he doesn't answer. The two detectives walked around to the back of the house, and as they did, Kozenzak could see inside through a large window. Sure enough, Gacy was in there, sitting alone and watching TV. But as the men reached the back door, Gacy got up and greeted them. I heard you knocking at the front door, but I was in the bathroom. Evening, Mr. Gacy. I'm Chief Detective Kozenzak, and this is Detective Pikel. May we come in? We have a few questions for you about a missing boy in Des Plaines. Gacy obliged and let the two men inside. The interior of John Gacy's house was a bizarre combination of styles. The living room where the three men stood was wood-paneled, decorated with a dark leather couch and a pool table. In the corner of the room, Gacy had constructed a tiki-style bar complete with a grass awning. As the two officers talked, Gacy walked over to the bar and sat at one of the stools. Gacy told the two men the same story he had told Detective Adams. He claimed to have never spoken to Robert Peast and was only at Nissan Pharmacy for business. But when Kozenzak asked Gacy to come with him back to the police station, the contractor explained that he couldn't. My uncle died last night. I'm expecting a call from my mother about the funeral arrangements. She's in Arkansas and... It's up to me to sort everything out. I'm sorry for your loss, John, but you you have to imagine how worried the Peast family must be about their lost son. Why don't you call your mother now, and then you can come with us? Call her now? Uh, If you say so. While Gacy called his mother, Chief Kozenzak surveyed the living room. His eyes landed on a small slip of paper on a table. Without touching it, He moved closer. It was a receipt, and typed clearly on it were the words, Nissan Pharmacy. If Casey was telling the truth, this receipt wouldn't mean anything. As the pharmacy's contractor, it would make sense for Casey to have a receipt from that business. But Kozenzak wasn't convinced of Casey's innocence, and this piece of evidence made him all the more suspicious. He picked up the receipt and pocketed it. Gacy finished his call, and Kozenzak walked over to him, prepared to continue their conversation. But in that moment, James, Gacy's young employee, appeared at the back door. The timing could not have been worse. John Gacy saw James at the door, and his mood completely changed. I have more important things to do. I'm not going to the police station with you. I understand. Here's my business card. If you have the time, I'll be at the station tonight waiting for you. Okay. 
I can be there in about an hour. Good night, detectives. Chief Kozenzak couldn't make John Gacy come with him, and the two detectives resigned themselves to head back to the station. Hopefully, Gacy would show up later that night. But before they left, Kozenzak walked up to the other unmarked squad car that had been idling in the driveway. Inside, Detectives Summershield and Olson waited to hear how it went. No dice. Bakel and I are going to head back to the station, but I want you two to watch Gacy's house. He was acting weird, and you could try to make a break for it. Make sure he doesn't go anywhere. And if he does? Radio me immediately and follow him. Don't let him out of your sight. Olsen and Summershield drove the car down the block so it would be out of sight. The two detectives sat and stared at Gacy's house, waiting. But Chief Kozenzak and Detective Pickel had hardly been driving for five minutes when they heard a familiar voice on the police radio. He's on the move. We're pursuing now, but he managed to get a head start. That kid James is driving a van, and Gacy is in a black Oldsmobile. They're both making a run for it. James Hutton had parked the van right up against the house, which had allowed Gacy to sneak out and walk to his own car without being detected by the police. Olsen and Summershield immediately followed, but they weren't fast enough. We lost him! Gacy's sudden escape certainly appeared suspicious to Kozenzak and Pakel, but still, the police didn't have any cause to arrest the man. All the two officers could do was hope that Gacy would show up at the station of his own accord. Later that evening, around 11 p.m., the station phone rang. Des Plains Police. You still want to speak with me? Yes, Mr. Gacy, we'd like to talk to you tonight. Uh, how long do you think it'll take you to get here? About a half hour. Sounds good. We'll be waiting. The two detectives waited impatiently for Gacy to arrive. But as the minutes ticked by, he didn't show. 30 minutes passed, then an hour. It was getting close to midnight. Kozenzak and Pakel started to suspect that Gacy wouldn't come after all. Both men waited around until 1 a.m., and when Gacy still didn't turn up, they decided to call it quits for the night. There would be no interview after all. But then, around 3.30 in the morning, the station door opened. John Gacy walked in from the cold, arriving over four hours after he had called Kozenzak. He had mud on his shoes and streaks of dirt down his pants. Evening, officer. Is Chief Kozenzak here? I'm supposed to speak with him. Sorry, Kozenzak left two hours ago. You John Gacy? I am. He left a note for you. It says you should come back tomorrow. So I guess come back tomorrow. John Gacy left the police station. If Kozenzak was going to get his interview, he would have to wait until the morning. And hopefully, it would be worth it. Coming up, the police discover an unexpected piece of evidence at Gacy's house. Stay with us. And now, back to our story. While the police struggled to interview John Gacy on December 12, 1978, Robert Peast's family were busy with their own search. 
Determined to find their son alive, Mr. and Mrs. Peace shared images of Rob far and wide. Robert's siblings passed out flyers to their classmates, asking everyone at school to contact the police if they knew anything about Robert's whereabouts. The Peace children had even done their own stakeout of Gacy's house on December 12th and had seen police officers at the scene. The family immediately suspected John Gacy, and Mr. and Mrs. Peace did their own research into his history. Like the police, the Peasts found out about Gacy's criminal past and specifically his history of attacking young men. The Peasts felt all the more convinced that this man was responsible for Robert's disappearance. On December 13th, only two days after the teenager went missing, the Peast family arrived at the Des Plaines police station to share notes with the officers working on the case. It's that Gacy fella, I'm sure of it. What did he say to you last night? Well, he claimed that he never spoke to your son. That's impossible. We spoke to Rob's co-workers. John Gacy was offering our son a summer job and they left together. He's the guy. You need to search his house. We're working on getting a search warrant so we can do just that. In the meantime, sit tight. You've already done enough. The meeting with the Peast family cast an even stronger sense of urgency over the case. Chief Kozenzak needed to get a warrant to search Gacy's house. And without any tangible evidence against the man, that could be difficult. But at 11 a.m., John Gacy called the station. Gacy calmly explained that he had experienced some car trouble, and that was why he took so long. Gacy asked Kozenzak if he still wanted to talk, and Kozenzak said yes. But this time, Gacy showed up. The timing was perfect. As Detective Pickell ushered Gacy into an interrogation room, Kozenzak began making the arrangements for a search warrant. He joined up with an assistant state's attorney for Cook County's 3rd District. For the sake of privacy, we'll refer to him as Frank Peterson. Kozenzak hoped that he and Peterson could convince a judge to issue the warrant. In the interrogation room, Gacy told the same story to Detective Pickell that he had relayed to Ron Adams the day before. Gacy denied speaking to Robert Peast at all and claimed to have been at the pharmacy for business. Detective Pickell asked a few questions and had Gacy fill out a written statement. But the police were determined to keep him in interrogation long enough for Kozenzak to secure a warrant and search the house. As the hours passed, Gacy became more and more agitated. At one point, another officer asked him if he would be willing to take a lie detector test. That sent Gacy into a fit. He demanded to speak to his attorney. But the Des Plaines police had been expecting that. Kozenzak spoke to Gacy's attorney himself and explained that the man was being held at the recommendation of Assistant State's Attorney Frank Peterson. Gacy wasn't going anywhere. By 5 p.m., Kozenzak and Peterson had been approved for a search warrant of Gacy's house and cars. The judge, looking over Gacy's criminal record, had understood the significance of this warrant, despite the police's lack of evidence. Kozenzak and his team were good to go. There was only one thing left to do. Afternoon. I'm Assistant State's Attorney Peterson. We have a search warrant for your house and vehicles, Mr. Gacy, and we'd appreciate the use of your keys. No! Who are you? I do not consent to this! Either give up the keys, John, or you'll have to buy a new door. 
Get away from me! Don't you dare touch me! Come on, John. We've been talking together all afternoon. Why not give us the keys? Casey stared at the men with bloodshot eyes. His face was red and shining with sweat. He had no choice. With a disgusted look, Casey threw his keys onto the floor. Kozenzak and his men drove to John Gacy's house with one clear objective. Search for any indication that Robert Peast had been there. As the early evening sunset began to turn things orange and yellow, seven detectives returned to the house on Summerdale Avenue. Kozenzak entered the house through the front door. Inside, everything was dark. The detective would later recall that the space had an air of neglect. Gacy's residence was large for a ranch house. Three bedrooms, a dining room, a kitchen, a living room, a bathroom, and an attic. He had decorated the space with a chaotic combination of trinkets. The wood-paneled walls were dotted with paintings of Gacy's own creation, usually depicting clowns. Flipping on the light switch, the men got straight to work. Quickly, it became clear to the men that Gacy had a certain proclivity for teenage boys. The detectives found pornographic magazines and books littered all over the space, often out in the open. But the detectives also found several other bizarre items. Hey, Kozenzak, check this out. We found these in the northwest bedroom of the house. Two driver's licenses. Huh. Who are these kids? I don't recognize their names. That's not all we found, sir. Do the initials J-A-S mean anything to you? Detective Pickell produced a class ring, another item that he had found in the northwest bedroom of Gacy's house. The item certainly didn't belong to Robert Peace, but Chief Kozenzak placed it in an evidence bag nonetheless. Over the next three hours, the detective searched the entirety of Gacy's house and both of his cars. The men left that evening with a large collection of Gacy's possessions, including the licenses, the class ring, and several bottles of unknown pills found all over the house. In the bottom of a trash can, Kozenzak also found another receipt from Nissan Pharmacy. This time, the receipt was for a roll of film to be developed. And in the laundry room, the detectives had found a blue parka. Gacy was a large man, and the parka hardly looked like it would fit him. Right before the end of their search, one detective made a puzzling discovery. I was just checking the hall closet and I noticed something. Look here, there's a crack running all along the edge of the floor. It almost looks like a trap door or something. That's strange. Here, uh, hand me the screwdriver. Let's see if we can pry it open. Kozenzak jammed the blunt edge of the screwdriver into the crack in the floor. And as he did so, the entire closet floor lifted up. The detective was right. It was a trap door. The door opened into the crawl space beneath the house. The two men peered in but couldn't see anything. The men dropped down into the space to look around, but the ground was undisturbed. Robert Peast wasn't down there. They only felt the typical dampness of an unfinished basement. Still, the covert nature of this door seemed wrong to the two detectives. The group concluded their search and drove back to the station with their collection of evidence. 
None of it gave the men grounds to arrest John Gacy, but it certainly made the man seem more suspicious. Back at the station, Gacy was more irritated than ever. It was nearly 11 p.m., and an entire day's worth of interrogation had left him on edge. But the police could no longer hold him there. After being read his Miranda rights, Gacy was free to go. The next two days, December 14th and 15th, were filled with interviews. Kozenzak and his men interviewed more of Robert's friends, who all painted the same picture of the 15-year-old. He was friendly, athletic, and not the type to run away from home. The detectives also asked around about John Gacy, speaking to his neighbors and his co-workers. Kozenzak even spoke to James Hutton, the 19-year-old boy who had arrived at Gacy's house on December 12th. According to his acquaintances, John Gacy was a relatively well-liked man in Des Plaines. In addition to his contracting business, he was the precinct captain for his township's Democratic Party organization and played an active role in his community. He was also known for having elaborate get-togethers, often involving costumes. One photograph from 1976 showed Gacy in a tri-cornered hat and powdered wig, celebrating the bicentennial of the United States. Another snapshot from that same year showed him smiling in front of his home, dressed in a red and white striped jumpsuit and red nose, holding a bunch of balloons. On the side, Gacy would regularly perform at children's parties as Pogo the Clown. But this image of Gacy contrasted drastically to the Gacy that the police had unearthed during their search of his home. Kozenzak remained unconvinced that this man was the kind-hearted member of the community that his friends claimed him to be. Kozenzak was particularly intrigued by James, the young associate who worked with John Gacy. The detective had a hunch that the teenager knew more than he was letting on. But when Kozenzak interviewed the young man, it was uneventful. To James, his job with Gacy was just a job. He had nothing to add. By the afternoon of December 15th, it looked like the case was beginning to stall. No one the police interviewed seemed to have anything helpful to say about Robert Peast or could explain the bizarre secret life of John Gacy. But then the phone rang. Des Plains Police, this is Kozenzak. Hey, this is James Hutton, Mr. Gacy's employee. We spoke the other day. James, yes, hello. What can I do for you? So, I've been thinking about the missing kid, Robert, what's his name, and I just remembered something that might be important to you guys. Oh? Yeah, there were two other people that work with Mr. Gacy who disappeared. Two guys. Gregory Godzik, a high school student who worked for Gacy, had disappeared sometime in 1976. And James explained that he had heard another rumor about another one of Gacy's employees, Charles Hatula, who had been found drowned in a river outside of Chicago. Kozenzak thanked James, hung up, and immediately checked on the validity of his statement. Sure enough, Gregory Godzik had been reported missing in 1976, and his case was still open. Not only that, Kozenzak found that Gregory's father had been unsatisfied with the investigation, 
Apparently, Gacy had never paid the boy's last paycheck before he disappeared. Kozenzak agreed with Mr. Godzik. That was suspicious. The detective started looking at other employees who had worked with Gacy. That's how he found John Zick, a 19-year-old man who had been reported missing in 1977. John had also been an employee of Gacy, and Gacy had also refused to pay the boy's final paycheck right before he disappeared. Kozenzak looked over the list of items that he and his crew had taken from Gacy's house. One in particular caught his eye, the Maine West High School class ring with the initials J-A-S. It couldn't be a coincidence. That ring had to belong to John Zick. And if it did, then Kozenzak wasn't just investigating one case, but several. He was dealing with a serial killer. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of the murder of Robert Peast. For more information on Robert Peast's disappearance, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book The Chicago Killer, The Hunt for Serial Killer John Wayne Gacy by Joseph R. Kozenzak and Karen M. Kozenzak, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Georgia Hampton with writing assistance by Giles Hofseff, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Harris Markson, and K.G. Tang. Solved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Bad omens, good fortune, pure luck. Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>